Verse 23. There at Golgotha, they tried to give him wine, oinos, in the Greek, mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why not? Myrrh is a painkiller. And Jesus refused any painkillers. He wouldn't take it. Why refuse the painkiller? Because Jesus would not dull the pain. Jesus determined to take the full force of the weight of the wrath of God on Himself and He would be lucid and clear thinking and pain experiencing the entire time He was on the cross. He wouldn't take any softening of the wrath poured out on Him. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 that we are to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. How does He do it? By taking the wrath on Himself. And let me express this again to you as I have before, that the wrath of God that we deserve, you can take it in one of two doses. You can either take the full dose of it on yourself in judgment after you die. Or you can take the full dose of it, well, it was already taken by Jesus at the cross. And so if you give your life to Christ, if you walk with Jesus, the wrath of God that belongs to you, He already took at Calvary, and He took it 100%. There's not like .00001% that you still have to take. Purgatory. No such thing. How can you say that, Rick? Well, for one thing, the Bible doesn't teach it. And for another thing, for there to be a purgatory, which is a place I go to take care of a few things that I need to take care of, you know, to pay for a few things, well then Jesus didn't pay for it all. Or Jesus did pay for it all. And that's what the Bible teaches and that is the truth. He covered everything. He took the full wrath of God on Himself. And that's how He rescues us from the wrath to come, which means you won't even take an iota of wrath if you are in Christ Jesus. There's another reason I think Jesus rejected this oinos, this wine. You remember what He said to the apostles about wine at the Passover? I'm not going to drink this again. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. I won't do it. And so He doesn't. He rejects the painkiller and He rejects the wine. Luke 22:18. Well, isn't there a time like later in the story where He drinks some wine? We'll get there. And I'll answer you that in a minute. Verse 24. And they crucified Him and divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. The game of the king continuing on now at the foot of the cross. They're still rolling dice. They're still casting the lots. They're still playing games. Jesus is up there dying, bleeding out, and the soldiers hard-hearted and brutal, are playing games at His feet. And some still do it. Some people still play games for Jesus' clothing. What are you talking about, Rick? Jesus says, I would clothe you with a robe of righteousness. I will clothe you with My grace. And people toy with it. I see that you want to clothe me with a robe of righteousness, but I'd really like to add some tassels of my own service. I'd like to stitch in some, some ornamentation of my, of my works, of my ministry, of my liturgy. I want to add to it, Lord. I, robe of right, that's great. Thank you for your grace. And people play games. They pass around 
the clothing that Jesus gave, which is 100% pure grace. And they toy with it. And they diminish its significance. We play with grace. When we say there are certain things that must be done to get to where He wants you to be, we play with grace. Cheapen grace, as Bonhoeffer said. Well, they're down there playing, and it was the third hour, verse 25, when they crucified Him. That would be 9 a.m. And the inscription of the charge against Him read, the King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with Him, one on His right and one on His left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says He was numbered with the transgressors. Some of your Bibles either delete that or some say it wasn't in certain manuscripts. It's in the King James. It's also repeated that exact line, verse 28, and I believe it's in Luke. Totally appropriate to be here and I believe it was original with Mark. The Scripture was fulfilled which says He was numbered with the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53, verse 12. And we come to number 6 in this trek through the evening, through the morning now of His crucifixion. Jesus before sinners. Golgotha, Jesus lifted up before the world and now we see Jesus before sinners. Jesus in and among sinners. He's, He's crucified with two robbers. Numbered with the sinners. Numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53.12 Isaiah 53 verse 9 says His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet He was with a rich man in His death because He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in His mouth. And we talked about this when we studied Isaiah. It's perfect. The, The language of the prophecy is absolutely spot on. His grave was assigned with wicked men. That is, as a crucified man, his body should have been dumped in a pit with criminals. And had a couple of guys not come to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, that's exactly where it would have ended up. And we don't see the apostles going and asking for his body, do we? We see them hiding out. Two men will show up and get to them in just a few minutes. But his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death... He shouldn't have been. He should not have been laid in the tomb of a rich man. Now, he only needed it for you know a couple or three days. He's going to give it back. It's more of a rental, I guess you could say. But he shouldn't have been there. And yet, the prophecy declared he would be there. So, of course, that's exactly what would happen. The robbers were there beside him. In fact, it goes on, verse 29 says, those passing by were hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross, Jesus before sinners. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking Him among themselves and saying, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe And those who were crucified with Him, note this, were also insulting Him. Well, that's what Mark tells us. And Matthew and Luke, John tells us. No, I'm sorry, it was Luke. Luke tells us one of the criminals turns and says, Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, what happened? Two possibilities. Either Mark was just kind of lumping in what was said. And doesn't, you know, obviously detail this other criminal, this other thief, or 
This thief, at some point in Jesus' six hours on the cross, had a change of heart. And I think that's what happened. I think at first he probably was hurling insults at Jesus, you know, as he's in excruciating pain himself, and the other criminal's doing it, and everybody else is doing it, and so, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he, he, save us! You're going to save... But as he watches Jesus, who, by the way, on the cross, is still in complete composure, as he watches Jesus, as he looks at Jesus on the cross, you know, that just changes people. Yeah, you said that before, Rick. I know, but it does. Everybody who goes and and actually sees Jesus on the cross, you can't look at Christ on the cross and not have a change of heart. So if you don't have a change of heart, you haven't looked at Jesus on the cross. And this criminal looks and sees Jesus there and asks for salvation. And Jesus, Luke 23-43, in the greatest single act of grace we have in Scripture, cries out, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What can that thief possibly do to earn that at that point? Nothing. Nothing. All he could do is bleed out and die, and he was going to be with Jesus in paradise. Why? Because he asked for it. Expressing faith in Jesus. Grace is that simple. Save yourself, they cried, but if Jesus had saved himself, that thief would have died in his sin, unsaved, If Jesus had saved Himself, He wouldn't have saved any of us, for that matter. He couldn't save Himself, because Jesus always goes before sinners. Jesus goes before sinners. By the way, did you catch what the Jewish leaders said in verse 31? Look at it. They said, He saved others. They admit it. They believe it. He saved others, let him save himself. Or he saved others, he cannot save himself. They acknowledged Jesus healed people. They acknowledged Jesus saved people. Why do they still want to see him dead? It's amazing. This is a heart that is so hard, even though it looks on Jesus at the cross, does not see Jesus on the cross. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came, this is 12 noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think about this, three hours of darkness. He's on the cross, nine to noon. And all these things transpire. At noon, the sky goes black. And from noon to three, in that utter darkness, Jesus is there on the cross. The people all over Jerusalem are celebrating Passover in that moment when everything goes dark. You're not going to have the candles lit as you would in the evening. You know, you're not prepared for that. All of a sudden, complete darkness. (laughs) Grab the flashlights, kids. What's going on? I don't know. Total eclipse. What's remarkable about this is part of the celebration of Passover would recall the ten plagues. And the ninth plague was three days of darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. 
Three days of darkness now represented in three hours, or perhaps three days of darkness then representative of the three hours of darkness that would happen when Jesus is on the cross taking all the plague of the wrath of God on Himself as the world literally goes dark. And some have said, okay, I mean, it has to have been a solar eclipse. It has to have been a solar eclipse. As we see the signaling of the full wrath of God at the crucifixion of Jesus poured out, of course the sky would go dark. The light of the world is now on the cross. The great light who is shown in the darkness is now being killed because darkness, John said, does not understand the light. doesn't get it. Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord. And the wine foams, it's well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drink and drain down its dregs. The cup of wrath is what Psalm 75 describes. It's the same cup that the night before Jesus prayed to the Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup of wrath. And now Jesus is drinking the cup of wrath deeply. He will not drink the wine of celebration, but He will completely imbibe on the cup of God's wrath. Ironside said He drained it to the dregs. Adam Clark wrote in his commentary, Reader, one drop of this cup would bear down thy soul to endless ruin. And these agonies would annihilate the universe. He suffered alone. For the people... There was none with Him. Because His sufferings were to make an atonement for the sins of the world. And in the work of redemption, He had no helper. And so Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why does He say this? You Bible students know two reasons. The first reason is very simply to direct His disciples to the right passage of Scripture. What? It wouldn't be until the 1200s that chapters, as I talked about last week, chapters were introduced into the Bible. And in the 1500s, then, verses were introduced into the chapters. So back in the days of Jesus and the rabbis, the old rabbis, the way that they told their students what passage they were teaching from is they would quote the first verse. And the moment they quoted the first verse, the students would know, oh, okay, now we're in this place. Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is verse 1 of Psalm 22. What is Rabbi Jesus doing? In that moment, He is lucid, He is clear thinking, and He's saying, Go to Psalm 22. It's me. It is all about me. If you've read Psalm 22, you know this. Along with Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 is the most graphic prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ in the Hebrew Scriptures. It is absolutely stunning. Word for word, you can read it and see Jesus on the cross. And it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the rabbi, on the cross, cogent and clear thinking and as practical as that, says, go to Psalm 22. What's happening here is Psalm 22. What's happening here has been told. It's been foretold to you. So anyone, and we've done it, can open their Bibles, go to Psalm 22 and say, it's a perfect match. But there's another reason 
why Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because not only is He clear thinking and practical on the cross, but He is experiential. He is personal. He's human. And I believe He's crying out from the depth of a broken human heart. So not only to direct His disciples to the right passage, but to deplore His distance from God. God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? This is, by the way, the only time, the only time Jesus ever refers to His Father as God. He'll say, Father in heaven. He'll say, Abba. He will never, in any other situation, cry out, My God! Eloi! In the Aramaic. El in the Hebrew. It is... Among the words for God, it is the least personal, it is the most distant word that you can use for God. My God. My God. Intimacy is gone. Closeness is lost. Separation is painful. He became sin who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And so in that moment, as He cries out, not only is He directing His apostles directing us to know what was really going on, to understand it in its fullness. But He's also crying out truly from the depths of a broken human heart, separated for the first time ever and the only time ever in all of history as the sin of humanity is dumped on His shoulders. By the way, what what actually killed Jesus? People have asked that question, have wondered that. What actually killed Jesus? John 19.34 says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So medically speaking, doctors can tell us if you pierce the side of a dead person and blood and water flow out together, their heart burst. And so medically speaking, Jesus on the cross died of a burst heart. A broken heart. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, He's calling for Elijah! They heard Eloi, and they didn't hear anything else he said. By the way, Christians, be careful just hearing one word of Jesus. Be careful not to just hear one word and miss the rest of what he says. Be careful pulling one verse out of context to back up your theology, because you haven't heard the whole counsel of the Word of God. If they had heard everything Jesus said, these people in that moment would have probably said, Hey, he's quoting Psalm 22. (laughs) Wow. But all they heard was, Oh, Elijah, he's calling for Elijah, they say. Well, let's see if Elijah will come and help him. And by the way, verse 36 is that other verse. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a a reed, and gave it to him to drink. You might say, well, okay, but we said before, he didn't take the wine because he said he wouldn't take the wine. He wouldn't drink wine again until he came in His kingdom, but apparently He does here. Well, not necessarily. Either He doesn't really drink it. They gave it to Him to drink. We're not told, at least in Mark, that He did drink it. But even if He had, it's a different word. Sour wine here is otzos in the Greek. The wine over before in verse 23 that was mixed with myrrh is oinos. Oinos is good, actual wine. Otzos is actually a vinegar drink wasn't even really considered wine at all among the people. It was a drink for soldiers. It was a drink for poor people. In fact, they would occasionally call it a poor man's wine. 
But it was not the same thing. It was not the wine of celebration. It was not the wine that is tasty. It's not the wine of the Last Supper that Jesus will drink in the kingdom. So even if he wet his lips with this, it was a poor man's vinegar drink and not wine. Verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew includes there was a great earthquake. So consider all this that's going on at the same time. Darkness covers the land. A great earthquake takes place right as Jesus breathes His last. He cries out that phrase. You know what He said. It is finished. And an earthquake strikes in the darkness and the temple is shaking and the temple veil ripped from top to bottom. I'm sure freaking out a handful of priests there in that moment. And the Roman historian Phlegon, who I always, <laughs> I always thought he was a Klingon, but apparently he was a Roman historian. Phlegon. This guy described an extraordinary solar eclipse and an earthquake that shook the land at the time of the crucifixion. You go back and read his historical writings and he describes this day when everything went dark and there was a massive earthquake. And this is especially amazing, the darkness over the land, for a couple of reasons. First of all, gang, a natural solar eclipse is only possible at the new moon. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. The new moon was Nisan the first. Passover and the crucifixion of Jesus was Nisan the 14th. It was a full moon, but it was not the new moon. And based on the solar or the, the lunar phases, you cannot have a lunar eclipse except at the new moon. So though there was a full moon at the time, it would be an impossibility by natural means to have a solar eclipse. Impossible. Can't happen. It did. In fact, it was more than that. Take it a step further. When was the last time you saw an eclipse last three hours? <laughs> it doesn't go that way. An eclipse is a few seconds or a few minutes. That you watch it slowly move across. If you've ever seen one, it's, it's a marvelous sight. That's not what was going on. It was bigger than that. It was deeper than that. It was darker than that. And in that moment, one of the most dramatic things that happened wasn't the earthquake, it wasn't the darkness for three hours. It was the huge, thick temple veil ripped in two. The Bible tells us from top to bottom as though grabbed a hold of by the hands of God and He says, that's it, it's done. Jesus cries out, it's finished. The Father says, yes it is. And the door is now open to everybody to have full access to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. What a stunning, dramatic moment that was. All the Levitical sacrifices instantly fulfilled. And the way is now open. Hebrews 6.19 tells us, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And we talked about Melchizedek a couple weeks back. That being the case, why do people keep trying to fix the veil? Why, why do people keep wanting to repair it and put it back up? As if it were possible to stitch it back together? Why do we keep coming up with new barriers between ourselves and God? Instead of accepting the open path laid out for us. God, remove the veil. Don't try to repair the veil. 
What are you talking about, Rick? Ah, the blood of Jesus purified us to be able to come into the presence of God without doing anything. We don't have to have a prescribed number of songs. In fact, we don't have to have songs at all. I, I thought about this. I, I, I uh, texted John yesterday as he went to pick up his daughter, Taylor. Taylor's home from Germany for a, a brief visit. So he went to get her, and, and I texted him. I said, man, my voice is still thrashed here. I don't think I can sing tomorrow night. But I'm thinking he's picking up his daughter. He may not be able to be there tomorrow night. What do we do? What do we do if we can't have music? We'll worship. We'll just worship God. You don't have to do it in song. We don't have to have a certain number. Three songs and a prayer and then two more songs and then communion and then the teaching. Because if we don't do it that way, (laughs) we can't go into the veil. We can't enter the Holy of Holies. We've got to make sure we burn incense. You know, because if we don't, you can't get in. It takes some holy water. I'm not meaning to, to rag on Catholicism. That's just one example. But there are all number of churches who have their own liturgy and people get upset if we step outside of the liturgy. And what we're doing when we do that is we stitch up the veil. And we're removing the entrance that God made for us through Jesus who said it is finished, the Greek te telestai. And by the way, the shout, it is finished, is not a shout of defeat. It is a shout of victory. It's what a runner would cry when he breaks the tape. It's finished. Victory. And, and as a matter of fact, te telestai literally means paid in full. Done. And you can't add to it and you can't take away from it. The work is done. So leave the veil out of it. We've seen Jesus before Pilate. Jesus before Barabbas. Jesus before the soldiers and before Simon. We see Jesus on Golgotha before the world. We see Him crucified before and around and among sinners. And now verse 39, we see Jesus before the centurion. Number 7, Jesus before the centurion. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Some of your translations say a Son of God. It could go either way, but other Gospel writers make it clear that the centurion said, truly this man was the Son of God. I believe it was an expression of faith. I don't think he was just saying, wow, he was a righteous dude. Three hours of darkness, earthquake, Jesus in complete control all the way up to his very death. By the way, a centurion had seen people die many times. Not only standing guard at crosses as people were killed, but to be a Roman centurion, it was said you had to kill at least a hundred men in battle. This man had seen people die. He had never seen anybody die the way he saw Jesus die that day. Complete composure and calm. He's watching Jesus on the cross. What happens when you look at Jesus on the cross? Really look at Him? Faith stirs. Your life is changed. The centurion sees Jesus on the cross and says, Surely this this was the Son of God. Most victims who would die on the cross would have passed out hours before. 
or they would die swooning, or they would die delirious from the pain and the exhaustion. Jesus was absolutely lucid to His last breath. And Jesus chose the moment of His departure. He, the Bible tells us, gave up His Spirit. Augustine put it this way, he said, He gave up His life because He willed it, when He willed it, and as He willed it. It was totally Jesus' choice. Jesus said back in John 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And truly, He did have authority to take it up again. You know what the Bible tells us? In the resurrection of Jesus, you know who resurrected Jesus? Jesus did. Of course, the Bible also tells us God the Father did, and the Holy Spirit did. (laughs) So, it was a kind of a group effort. God raised God from the dead. Jesus, by His authority, stood up and walked out of the tomb. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Verse 40, there were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph and Salome, Salome the mother of James and John. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus, number eight, before the women. Jesus before the women. It's marvelous. It's a short list of faithful witnesses, all women, who were at the cross. Now we'll find out from other Gospel writers that there were others there as as well. In fact, all of those who were with Him stood at a distance. John was there close to the cross. But Mark names these ladies. And they should be named. These are the same ones who silently, who quietly followed Jesus throughout His entire Galilean ministry, providing food, providing places to rest, supporting Him out of their pocketbooks. Luke 8, verses 2 and 3 tell us. This is a fine list to be named on. And by the way, I know some of you do that. Some of you provide food, and you provide places to rest, and you provide out of your pocketbooks. You fold up clothes and stack them and take them up for the homeless ministry. You, you drop stuff in the, in the Salvation Army barrel. You, you give boxes to kids in Operation Christmas Child. You're quietly serving. You're just doing what Jesus asked you to do. And you need to know there is great honor in quiet service. In fact, I think the greatest honor. And it's so amazing to me, so impressive that these ladies are named in a place, I believe, of the highest honor, and that is in the recounting of the crucifixion, named for their service. Jesus before the women. What a beautiful testimony. Verse 42, When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before Shabbat, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead because he shouldn't have been. Crucifixion lasted three, four days. That was the idea. Excruciating pain over a prolonged period of time before they finally died. Some would stay on a cross as long as a week. 
And the soldiers would give them the, the myrrh wine to numb them and, and get them through just a little longer to make the, the, the pain last longer. Jesus died in six hours. And Pilate's like, what? Call the centurion. No, what? no way. No way he's already dead. Any question to him as to whether he was already dead and ascertaining this from the centurion, I guess he is, he granted the body to Joseph. Jesus before Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, listen to this, was one of the 70, we're told. One of the 70, a member of the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. Do you realize what this means? Joseph was of the Sanhedrin. Verse 1 tells us the Sanhedrin met early that morning and condemned him. And by the way, Mark is clear to say back in verse 1 of chapter 15, the whole council was there. Which to me, if I said we had an elders meeting and the whole group of shepherds were there, that means they were all there. Joseph of Arimathea was there. Now, John 19.38 tells us after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and he took away his body. John tells us there was another member of the Sanhedrin of the Seventy who was there as well, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Another secret disciple. You remember Nick at night? He came to Jesus at night? <laughs> John 19.39, he, he came to Him first by night, also bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two secret disciples now come out in their discipleship. They come out of their shell. They make it known by going and asking for the body of Jesus. It's a highly risky thing to do. They go and they ask. They get the body of Jesus. They lovingly take and prepare His body for burial. What changed? What caused them suddenly to burst out in the open with their faith? And I come back to this issue again. They saw Jesus on the cross. And when you see Jesus on the cross, it changes you. Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus, they saw him die. It changed everything for them. Adam Clark says, strange as it may appear, the death of Jesus is the grand cause of confidence and courage to a believing soul. But man, isn't it a little too little, a little too late? Come on. They were complicit in the crucifixion. They were at the council of the Sanhedrin. Where were they? When the Sanhedrin met, why didn't they speak up then? Why didn't they stop it then? They are complicit in their muted silence to the death of Jesus. In the same way Paul was complicit in the stoning of Stephen. Can you imagine what it was like to be Paul living your entire life? You've become a Christian now. You've repented of all the wrongs you did against other Christians in the church. But every time anybody through the rest of your life ever even mentioned the name Stephen, you would have to know that you were complicit in his death. That you stood by approving of his stoning. And you know what? I've repented of things in the past. And I know I'm free of them by grace. I still don't like to be reminded of them. Sometimes they come up and I just go, 
Why did I ever do that? And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that morning said nothing to defend Jesus. Secret disciples. But after seeing Him on the cross, now they put their own lives on the line to go ask for His body. Gang, we are complicit in Jesus' death. Every one of us. Had I been there with the Sanhedrin, would I have opened my mouth? Probably not. Would you? Probably not. And the truth is, Jesus died because we needed Him to die. He knew that. He was going to die because we needed it. We are complicit in His death and we are saved by His death. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. wonder what it was like for Joseph or for Nicodemus to see Jesus resurrected. Wow. Yes! I mean, talk about the ultimate off the hook. Okay, yeah, we were there, but He's not dead anymore. No can blame me. He's alive. Romans 5a, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, complicit, He died for us. And so while Joseph and Nicodemus were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Brothers and sisters, do you see what I mean here? Jesus is before all things. He was before Pilate, before Barabbas, before Simon, before the soldiers, before the centurion, before the sinners, before the world, before Joseph of Arimathea before the women. He's before all things. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1.17 He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. What does that mean? He goes before the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? It means He's the first one to be born and stay alive. So He goes before the rest of us who will be resurrected. And He Himself will come to have first place in everything because Jesus is before everything. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Compare this, the end of Jesus' life, with the beginning of Jesus' life. Because just a page over in Luke chapter 2, we know there was a Joseph there when Jesus was born. We know there was a Mary there. Here at his burial, we have Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Joseph. So there are two Marys, I think just to drive the point home. So Joseph, Mary and Mary, over here at Luke chapter 2, verse 4, Joseph went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with the child. Did you know Mary was there at Jesus' birth? (laughs) Just seeing if you're awake. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. Joseph wrapped him in a linen cloth. The distinction between these two words, and they're two different words, one is strips of cloth, one is a full linen cloth, the death shroud that he was wrapped in that Joseph used. But 
In both cases, Jesus wrapped in cloth, and she laid him in a manger, and he laid him, note this, in a tomb hewn out in rock. The manger gang was a stone manger. They didn't have wooden mangers in Israel. They had stone mangers. And if you go there, you can see them. There are several that are that have been dug up, that have been unearthed. Old, ancient, 2,000-year-old stone mangers. That's what they fed animals out of, carved out of rock. Jesus starts His life laid in a rock-hewn manger, wrapped in cloth with Joseph and Mary there. And He ends His life laid in a rock-hewn tomb, wrapped in linen cloth, and Joseph and a couple of Marys are there. It's just interesting to me. It's like Jesus has come all the way back around. What's your point, Rick? Simply this. Colossians 2.6 says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, we need to remember to go back to the beginning. I'm not talking about immaturity. I'm talking about simplicity. And go back to that faith where we first first ignited, when the light first went on, when I first believed Jesus. And what was it that did it? It was the cross. And it is so simple. And when your life gets convoluted and confused and theologically perplexing or or economically perplexing or relationally strained, just go back to the beginning. Go back to the cross. As you receive Christ Jesus, live in Him. Jesus, as you were silent before your accusers. So when we come before the cross, it seems to me that silence is absolutely appropriate. And I ask you, Lord, to truly seal the teaching of Mark 15, the words of your book, on our hearts tonight. To remind us yet again of the cross of Christ. Not Jesus because you're still on the cross. No, you came down from the cross. You came out of the tomb and you are resurrected and live forever. But Lord, I pray that we would live these lives determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And through the recognition of your crucifixion, May there be a revelation in our faith. May we walk in the composure of Christ, having given ourselves to Christ. And Lord Jesus, may we always honor You and glorify You for who You are and for what You did that day. We praise the name of Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.